Thanks, Sun West. Good to be with you guys. Thanks, Dave. Thanks, group leaders. Um, it, it's awesome that we can do these groups every semester. So every 10 weeks or so, these groups uh, restart and there's new groups. And uh, we changed uh, that group model years ago because we realized there's a bit of a bottleneck getting into an old small group model where you know groups have been meeting for years at a time and people would come and they were new to SunWest. Like, we like to get them plugged in. We try to get them plugged in. And it was hard to find groups for them. And then groups would grow to like 20 plus people and just became too big for us to do community together. And so uh, we changed the model and we said, if there's something that uh, you see that you would want to do in community, a serve group, a social group, a study group, a support group, uh, then you could be, uh, you can kind of create the change that you want to see, invite people to be a part of that. And so that's been really neat just to see that kind of take life. Uh, and to see the groups pop up uh, new every semester. So we encourage you, those, most of those groups are going live or they're going to be starting here in the next week uh, to go online and uh, check that out. Uh, and that's really what we're talking about this morning. Uh, we're talking about community, the, the gift of community. But before we get there, uh, we're starting a new series called Words to Live By. And uh, if you remember, if you've been around SunWest a long time, you, you, we would have had an old bulletin. How many of you guys were around when we had the bulletins and there was like a piece of paper in there called Words to Live By? And uh, it was the scripture verses. And uh, we're not actually talking about, well, we're going to talk about scripture, but the words to live by that we're talking about in the series uh, is our values. Uh, and words have the, the power to create uh, different experiences and environments for people. Um, if you're in junior high, did the, was that announced? All right. Uh, everybody wave to Colton at the back. Uh, if you're online, you can wave at your TV. Uh, if you're at grade six to eight, you can go to the back and uh, Colton's going to take you to Trinity Christian School for junior high conversations. Uh, so words, we use words to create environments. Uh, in Proverbs 18.21, it says, death and life are in the power of the tongue. And so what we speak, the things that we say, uh, greatly impact the other people in our lives and create the world that we live in. So we must choose our words carefully. It's not just true in the case of day-to-day conversations, but it's true uh, in the case of strategic values that we build as communities, as cultures, as societies. And so words often create uh, an energy and a power to them. And you'll notice that some words become, uh, they just become more popular at certain points in time, more trendy, and sometimes they carry connotations over time. And so the things that we say start to create the world that we live in. And so the words we use shape us. They shape our world. And so we need to choose our words and understand the words that we're saying uh, very, very carefully. And so one of the phrases, and it's good that we're talking about it this morning because we just talked about groups, but one of the phrases at SunWest, the words that we've chosen is don't do life alone. Everybody say don't do life alone. That was okay. Uh, Try one more time. Don't do life alone. Okay, so this word is expressing our value in community, and it's a statement that you hear most weeks. Uh, In fact, we have six values at SunWest that we're going through in this series, but this is probably the value, the word, uh, the verbiage that we hear back the most from people, don't do life alone. Uh, And we talk about the importance of being in community because we were created to live and participate in community. And we know that from a very young age. I always had a longing to belong. We all longed to belong. And I remember the year was 1996. Um, I was a young grade eight student. And the church that I grew up in, you were allowed to join youth group when you were in grade eight. Senior high, it was a mix of senior high and junior high, but you joined uh, youth group when you got to grade eight. And I remember anticipating joining youth group in grade eight. Uh, the church down the street, uh, their youth, you can only join in grade nine. And so I thought, this is cool. I get to join in grade eight. But the youth group I grew up in had an, a youth group initiation. 
Um, and it was, uh, it was pretty intense. And so often, uh, if you were a boy going into youth group in grade eight, the senior high students would initiate you into youth group, and it was horrifying. Uh, they would, uh, you know, I won't say the name of the church because I don't want to throw them under the bus, but uh, it, it, was, it was horrific. The things the senior boys would do to the younger boys, and there was, uh, there was this understanding, this rumor that going around that part of the youth group initiation, it always happened at the same, but the first event of the year, it was like this hay, hay ride that we always did, and uh, the senior highs would beat up on you, uh, and they would, they would one by one give wedgies to every single one of the boys who were in grade eight coming into youth group. Um, and I was, I was terrified. I didn't know I want this to happen, but I longed, I longed to belong. And I, I was like, it's worth it. I gotta, I gotta do it. I gotta go through it. I want to be a part of this community. Um, but I was, I was terrified. And so what I did is I took my underwear, uh, and I took some washcloths from my mom's, uh, from my mom's drawer outside her washroom. And I sewed washcloths. I sold three washcloths to the bottom of my underwear. And I even got my older brother to test it out. I'm like, yeah, pick me up. And he like, pick me up off the ground. I'm like, okay, I'm good. Uh, and so I went, I went to that, I went to that youth group event. Uh, and I had the secret weapon in my pants that they had no idea about this underwear, uh, with the washcloths. And sure enough, I, I went to youth group and halfway through that event, the senior boys just bore down on the, the uh, grade eight boys, and they all gave us a wedgies, and I, my, my, my friends were crying, and I was sitting there, uh, happy as it could be, uh, and I entered into that community. Um, it wasn't the greatest community, as you can imagine, if that's the, kind of what marks them. Uh, short, a short time later, by the time I was in grade 10, I actually transferred out of that youth group, and I started going to a different church. Uh, and going to a different youth group, uh, because even though I wanted to be part of that community, once I got there, I was left wanting and had some painful experiences uh, even beyond that initiation and found a different group of people to call my tribe and my community, and I kind of went through high school with a, with a different group. Uh, but we all long to belong. In fact, many of us go through significant pain and hardship trying to belong somewhere. And I believe that this is part of the human experience to want to be a part of a group, to be, be a part of a, uh, a community, uh, to be loved, to be accepted. This is part of how we were created, to live in the context of community. Everywhere I've gone, at every point in my life, uh, that has held true. Uh, in the 20 years that I've been pastoring here at SunWest, that has held true. I have not met one person that doesn't long to belong, that doesn't want to be a part of something, to be a part of a group, to be accepted, to be loved. Uh, it's just who we are as human beings. We've gone on missions trips all over the world, and every people, every person that we've met all over the world, they want to belong. They want to be loved. They want to be accepted. Uh, last November, we went to El Salvador to build some houses, and I was a part of that group, and we have another group going to El Salvador in November. Uh, as an FYI, so if you are interested in going on that trip, time is running out, uh, but I'm sure you could still get accepted. Uh, if you want to go, uh, let us know. Uh, but we went to El Salvador last year to build six houses, the group that I was with, and uh, I met a number of people while I was there. And so the first, uh, one of the first houses that we built for was this lady named Donatillo, kind of like Donatello, but not the, the artist, Donatillo. Um, and this is her, and we built this house for her. Um, and she was married at one point, a little bit of her story. She was married and had a son, uh, but her husband had left her 
for another mo- woman, uh, and they and his, his her husband went and had four other children with this other woman, uh, and then they the, her husband moved away to the states after they had four children, and they left the four children that he had had with this other woman with Donatillo. And so Donatillo raised four kids that weren't hers that came out of an affair that her husband had with another woman. And she raised them for 12 years. When the end of that 12 years was up, the husband and his uh, significant other came back and decided they wanted their kids back. And so these kids that she had raised to be her own were actually taken from her and they took her kids back and they went to the States with the kids, the kids that she had kind of learned to know and love. Her, older, her, her son, her oldest, the fifth, or the first son, uh, had also moved away, and she was left uh, all alone by herself, her heart obviously torn uh, to bits, not only being rejected by her husband, but then having those kids that were taken from her uh, that she had helped raise. She came to the area that she was in now because there was some land that was made available, um, and so they came, uh, she came with some hope, hoping that you know, this could be the beginning of a new life. She was 61 at the time uh, when we met her, not having her own place, not having a place to call home for herself, um, and she came there looking for a home, looking for a place to belong. This is Herbert and Tatiana. We built a house for them as well. Herbert came along actually to all six of the houses that we built, and he helped build all six of them. He was, uh, he was just a community encourager. Uh, everybody knew who he was. Uh, he was chipping in not just with his own house but with the other houses. And as we got to know Herbert and Tatiana and their story, uh, we learned that they were unable to have children. Uh, and uh, Tatiana loved kids. In fact, she ran the children's ministry at the church that they were a part of, uh, and she didn't have any children of her own. Uh, and so this was a source of significant heartbreak for both of them, um, and it was something that they were longing for and they didn't have. And then this is Morbera with uh, the four of us uh, that helped build the house uh, and her three kids. But you'll notice that her Significant other, her husband is not in the picture. Her husband was a taxi driver. And he would go from one community to the next, uh, driving people in his taxi. And if you're familiar with El Salvador, you know that the drug cartels um, have, been, have significant power uh, and influence in that country. And, and the government was actually working against the drug cartels. Her husband was a taxi driver. As he went from one community to the next community, the drug cartel would tax her husband, every time he went into and left a community. And so he was unable to actually earn the wages he was wanting to make because he kept having to pay the drug cartels because he was being threatened. So this was happening. As the government was actually trying to crack down on the drug cartels, uh, they saw her husband uh, paying the cartels every time he was leaving and exiting the communities, and they assumed that he was working with the cartels and he was arrested. So when we met Marbera and her three kids, he had been in prison, I think it was two years at that point, still waiting his trial, and she was raising the three kids on her own. Also in El Salvador, oh, that's a different story. Uh, that was in the convenience store. Uh, ask me about that story later. Continuing with this story, um, all three of these families uh, all found, all came to the same area with the same hope and the same longing to belong with different aches that each of them had. Donatillo 
she had nothing and was alone, but the community that she came in, uh, and so Shelter is also the community that we're building with, this Christ-centered uh, mission organization that is seeking to bring hope and life through providing a home and sharing the gospel through providing a home. Um, the families are identified through the local churches there, and so there's a great partnership going on there. And so they came together looking for hope, looking for belonging, looking for a home. Donatello showed up being alone, as you know, um, and it was fascinating. As you began to watch her, uh, she kind of served as the community grandma. Everyone loved her. Everybody supported her. All the kids knew her by name, and she lit up every time the kids would come see her. Um, and she would, when we, when we talked with her and we had an interview with, with her, the translator told us uh, that she said she would never want to be anywhere else other than where she is because she feels like she finally has a place to belong. The, the heartache that she had when her own children were taken from her, she was finding a sense of purpose and belonging again with the, the, the kids that were her grandchildren's age now that were living in the community. Herbert and Tatiana were close friends with Marbera. And they actually embraced Marbera and her story. And, and, uh, and it was neat how their stories kind of collided because they embraced helping with the kids. And in the midst of their own heartache and waiting for their own kids and not knowing if they would ever be able to have kids, they were able to kind of be these surrogate parents also for Marbera and her kids uh, when, their, when their dad wasn't even around. Marbera, in the absence of her husband, was able to find support from Herbert, and there's another family we built for, too. I don't have their picture on screen, but uh, another guy named Juan Carlos, and Juan Carlos and Herbert uh, kind of took Marbera and her family under their wings and helped provide and support her, and we got the opportunity to build these, ham- these houses for these families, and as we did that, and as we were observing over those days that we were there, um, I was reminded of Psalm 68 that said, God places the lonely in families. God places the lonely in families. And whether it's in El Salvador or whether it's in Calgary or somewhere else in the world, I believe every human being has the same longing to belong, to be loved, to be accepted, to not do life alone. We need to belong. We were powerfully reminded of this when we went through those years of COVID. Do you guys remember those years? And we were isolated. You couldn't meet together uh, in the same way that you had been previously. And that isolation took a toll on us as individuals, on us as a society, mentally, spiritually, relationally, emotionally. Because we have in us this desire and this drive to belong to a community of people. And I believe that this is in part what it means when the Bible says we were created in the image of God. God created us in his image, and he created us with a need and an expectation to be a part of more than just us. In fact, God himself is community. This is the mystery of the Trinity that the Christian faith has always taught, that God is three in one. He is one person, three parts, that God is Father, Son, Holy Spirit. This is the ministry of the Trinity that the church has always held. We learn in 1 John that God's essence is love which means at the core of who God is, it's love. And love actually needs community to be expressed. And this makes sense. If you strip away everything else, God at its core, at his essence, is love. At his essence, there is something communal that is being shared within the person of God. We were created in the image of God. We were created, in one sense, out of the community of God for community. 
We long to belong. I believe this is a God-given part of who we are as human beings. And as you read the scriptures, you realize that not only is God part of community, but we were meant to find our ultimate sense of community in him and through him. And so just like we have the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, we have descriptions of the people of God throughout the scriptures, referring to the children of God. God the Father has children. We are his children. So this is reflecting our relationship with the Father. The body of Christ reflecting our relationship with Jesus, being saved and redeemed by Jesus. The, church refer, or the Bible refers to the church as the body of Christ. We're referred to as being part of the fellowship of the Holy Spirit. And if you pay attention, all of these phrases, all these descriptions of Christian community have the word of in them, which means that what we experience with others ultimately should, and we're created for it to come out of the context of a relationship with God. Our horizontal sense of belonging comes from our vertical connection to God, the Father, the Son, the Holy Spirit. I read a book in college. It was part of the cl- uh, one of the books we had to read in one of our classes, and it was called Created for Community. And over time, I realized that I'm not sure I believed that title. I don't think we were created for community. I think we were created to be in community. We were created for God. But out of that for God, out of that vertical relationship with God comes an of relationship. We were created for God to be in community. Community is a byproduct of actually our connection to God. Because your community can come out of so many different things. Community for the sake of community isn't actually what we're called to. We're actually called first to God. And then a community is the byproduct of that. And yes, we were created to be in community, but we weren't created for community. We can have community that comes out of common interests. We can have community that comes out of having a common enemy. In fact, if you look at the culture around us right now, you will see that our culture has created a sense of belonging by identifying a common enemy. That's what the sense of community comes out of. We can, come, we can find community coming out of a common wounding when people are sharing your same pain. And so we identify with them, we belong with them, because out of that pain we have found community. We can have community that is coming out of a common agenda where we come together with another group of people because we share the same agenda. But we can also have community that comes out of a relationship with God, a common identity as the children of God, a common experience as people that are saved by grace through the death and resurrection of Jesus, a common connection because the one Holy Spirit lives in us and binds us together, the children of God, the body of Christ, the fellowship of the Spirit. And so the point isn't just to find community. The point is actually to experience community the way that God intended it to be. Our motive for community can take us to all sorts of different places. And so to unpack that a little bit, I want to I look at a passage in Mark chapter 3. Uh, in Mark chapter 3, it's a powerful passage when you think of the context of community, the context of family, the, what Jesus actually calls us to. And it begins like this. It says, Jesus went up on the mountainside 
And he called to him those he wanted, and they came to him. He appointed the twelve that they might be with him, and that he might send them out to preach and to have authority to drive out demons. And so Jesus went up on the mountainside, and we have more background to the story here in the book of Luke. Because in Luke it says that one of those days Jesus went out to a mountainside to pray. He spent the night praying to God, and when morning came, he called his disciples. And so this is the same event that's being described in Mark and Luke, and we know that this event, and this is important to take note of before we continue the story, Jesus had spent the whole night listening to God. Jesus spent the whole night seeking the Father on what he ought to do, looking for direction from God to, for those to whom he was going to call to follow him. So Jesus spends the night praying to God, looking for direction on whom to call. And so it says he called to him, these disciples. And if you look early in the book of Mark, you can see how this calling happened. There's a number of disciples that called. Simon and Andrew got called, and they were out in a boat, and they were fishing. And the scripture said that they left their nets to follow Jesus. And then it says that Jesus went and found John and James, and he called them to follow him. And it says they left their father to follow Jesus. It's interesting to note that Andrew and Peter left their nets and James and John left their father. Both of them left their careers, both sets of them. Both sets of them left their family. I think what Mark is trying to help us understand early on in the text that when Jesus called his disciples, they all had to leave something. And depending on who they were, who they were in their personality, it meant something different for each of them. If you think about uh, John who wrote First John, we know that John is relational. He talks about the love of God. He talks about loving your brothers and your sisters. He talks about the importance of if you love God, you need to love one another. This is John's kind of message. John, in and of himself, is a relational type of guy. And so when Jesus calls him to follow him, it would make sense that for John to leave his family was significant because he was relational. When you think of Peter... You think of the guy who puts his foot in his mouth, he's, he takes initiative, he's always trying to do something, he's the first one on the scene, he has that kind of entrepreneurial spirit, if you were to uh, kind of pin him down to a certain, certain personality type, and for Peter, maybe he would have had no issues leaving his family, but for him to leave his career was significant, and says, for Peter, it says when he followed Jesus, he left his nets. For every single one of Jesus' disciples, they left something to follow Jesus. To put Jesus in the center of their lives meant that they had to put something else secondary in their lives. We all leave something when we choose to follow Jesus. That loss is felt uniquely for each person, depending on who you are and what your story is. For some of us, we might leave careers. I met with a family or this lady a couple of weeks ago who for her, coming from a Muslim background, when she chose to follow Jesus, it meant to walk away from her family. For some of us, it might mean that my sexuality actually becomes secondary to Jesus being the center. And that is painful. For others, it might be our community. For others, it might be a certain calling that Jesus is calling us to, and to, in order to embrace that, it means that we have to change our five-year plan or a 10-year plan and do something different. 
Every time Jesus calls us, he calls us from something to something. He calls us to himself, but it always means that something else is moving in priority when we choose to make Jesus the center of our lives. And so Jesus calls his disciples, and they all left something to follow him. He spent the night praying to the Father, and he said, God, who should, Father, who should I ask? And he knew the names that he should ask. And so he called them. And we'll notice that there's two parts to being called here. To be with him and to be sent out by him. He appointed the 12 that they might be with him and that he might send them out to preach. He, he called them to intimacy and he called them to purpose. The community of Jesus, the, 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 the community that has put their faith in Jesus is brought together by a shared purpose of being connected relationally to Jesus and being on mission with Jesus. And it's interesting because Jesus didn't call, just call them to be with him as if the end point was just to be comfortable and gather people to himself. He actually called them for a purpose. Yes, to be with him in intimacy, but then to go out and to be on mission. Community among the disciples was a byproduct of being with Jesus and being on mission with Jesus. Community wasn't the end goal. Jesus was the end goal, and community was the byproduct. And so he called these to him. These are the 12 he appointed. Simon, to whom he gave the name Peter. James, son of Zebedee and his brother John. To them he gave the name something, uh, means, uh, which means sons of thunder. Andrew, Philip, Bartholomew, Matthew, Thomas, James, son of Alphaeus, Thaddeus, Simon the Zealot, and Judas Iscariot who betrayed him. And so Jesus brought this community of disciples together from different backgrounds and different stories, and he invited them all to come to be with him and to go on mission with him. And that community became so tight that they had nicknames. Have you ever been a part of a community so tight that you had nicknames for one another? Okay, so Simon, who would be named Peter, which actually means the rock. I mean, that's a sweet nickname. You're going to be the rock. I'm like, oh, yeah. Uh, that's a great nickname. Uh, sons of Zebedee, they got the nickname in that community to be the Sons of Thunder. That's a sweet nickname, too. I'm jealous of those nicknames. When I was in high school, um, just a little bit of background. If you don't know me, my name is Matt. My last name is Dick. Uh, and you can imagine that was the source of much pain in my own life. And so when I was in high school, I was playing sports with my older brother, uh, who was two years ahead of me. And so when I was in grade 9 and he was in grade 11, we started playing sports on the same team. We played volleyball together and we played basketball together on the senior basketball team. And then when I was in grade 10, he was in grade 12, and we played volleyball together and we played basketball together with the same community of people on those teams together each time we played. And over time, uh, actually it didn't take much time, but uh, pretty early on when I was in grade 9, uh, we both received nicknames. Uh, he received the nickname Big Dick, and I received the nickname Little Dick. Come on. That's, that's terrible, right? Um, and so, you know, you can imagine being in a gym, playing basketball, playing volleyball, and your teammates are yelling at you, Little Dick, and there's no, there's no context in the audience, and you're like, no, it's a term of camaraderie and team, I think, I think. Maybe they're making fun of me. I don't know. Um, but many of us, we played in teams. We've been a part of community, and, 
And there's certain like inside jokes and names and stuff that comes apart. We see that Jesus, even among his disciples, they started getting, they, they started having nicknames or sharing their life together. For three years, they intimately shared their life together. And so Jesus calls them. These guys are nicknames. And he also even calls Judas Iscariot, it says, who would later betray him. Was this an accident? I mean, Jesus was betrayed pretty significantly at the end of his life on earth. His best friend, one of his best friends that he spent three years with, ends up betraying him, leading to his death on a cross. Remember that Jesus just spent the previous night doing what? Praying and asking God, whom should I choose? And I'm pretty sure Jesus said that he does nothing without the Father telling him what to do. He says nothing without hearing what the Father says. He was doing the will of the Father. And in the will of the Father, Jesus pulls together this community that not only would change the world, yes, but would also have the capacity and did hurt him and betray him. Many of you who are here have been betrayed and hurt in community. And I hate to say it, but this is an inevitability. Anytime you get together in community and you start to be vulnerable with other people, being hurt and being betrayed happens, and I wish it wasn't so. Jesus himself was betrayed by one of his closest friends. And you might think, uh, well, it's nice for you as a, as a pastor, um, you know, you don't get to experience that. I, I, I will tell you that in 20 years, the amount of hurt and pain and betrayal that happens over time with being in one community for two decades is significant. You know, we have had friends that we have done life with, that we have had vacations with, that had painful exits from our community and also from our relationship, and it's hard. In fact, I would venture to say if you are a Christ follower and you're in this room and you've been a part of a church community at some point in your life, this sense of betrayal and disappointment and hurt at the hands of somebody else is not news to you. You've been there. Anytime you come together in community, even non-Christian community, and there's vulnerability, you will experience disappointment I guarantee it. In fact, you might be new to SunWest and you think, this is a nice place. I guarantee you, I'm going to disappoint you at some point. You will be hurt at some point. Disappointment is the risk of community. But there is something about the community of Jesus that is more powerful than the pain and disappointment we experience in our relationships. Jesus thought the risk was worth it. Do you? I think the alternative is we become hard people. We become unforgiving people. We build up walls. We become bitter instead of becoming better. We, we, we start becoming people that I don't think we would ever choose to be, but it becomes a self-protection mechanism, and that's why we do it. But Jesus, knowing that he was going to be betrayed knowing that he was going to go to the cross, knowing that there was pain ahead of him, still chose to bring this community together. In fact, in Hebrews it says, for the joy 
set before him. It says he endured the cross, but I would even say he endured the disappointment and the hurt from his friends for the joy set before him. He thought it was worth it. The story continues. It says, Then Jesus entered a house, and again a crowd gathered, so that he and his disciples were not even able to eat. And it says, When his family, everybody say family. When his family heard this, listen to this, they went to take charge of him. The the Greek language literally says to seize him. They went to seize him to try and control him. For they said, he's out of his mind. Jesus' own family wanted to control Jesus. Then Jesus' mother and brothers arrived, and they're standing outside because they want to control him. They sent someone in to call him, call him out. A crowd was sitting around him, and they told him, your mother and your brothers are outside. They're looking for you. Who are my mother and brothers, he asked. Then he looked at those seated in a circle around him and said, Here are my mother and brothers. Whoever does the will, whoever does God's will, is my brother and sister and mother. And here Jesus does something significant. He redefines family and community in a culture that was even more communal and familial than we are. This would have been a shocking statement. It would have been an insulting statement at the time. But Jesus is saying, When you come to be with me, it changes your other relationships. When you come to be with me, the priorities and the nature of how you even relate to one another changes. Your ties to your family worry your life. They worry your identity. But now, there's something different. Now your identity, your life, your status actually comes from your relationship to me, not the community that you're coming from or the family that you're coming from. So Jesus redefines what it means to be in community here And we see throughout Mark and in this passage that there's three groups of people, and scholars have noted uh, that there's three groups of people throughout the gospel of Mark, throughout the, the, the book of Mark. And there's three groups of people that are always in relationship to Jesus, those who are referred to as being on the outside, those who are around Jesus, and those who are with Jesus. Now, we've already talked about those who are with Jesus, the disciples, the people, uh, not just the 12, but the 72, and the more who came to put their hope and their faith and their identity and their purpose, their significance, the center of their life with Jesus. Those were those who were with him. Those who counted the cost of, and followed him. Those who didn't try and fit Jesus into their box or their expectations, but chose to fit their life around who Jesus was. Those who wanted to become like Jesus instead of making Jesus like them. That is those who were with him. The community of Jesus was a byproduct of them putting their faith in Jesus. They didn't come for comfort. In fact, many of those that were with him would end up losing their lives. And so comfort wasn't the point. Community wasn't the point. Jesus was the point. And that community, the family they experienced, was a byproduct of that community. Those are those who are with him. Then there's a group throughout the Gospel of Mark who are, on, who are outsiders. They are on the outside looking in. This is Jesus' family in the story. And before I make my point here, we need to note that the family of Jesus, although they're on the outside with Mark, uh, or in Mark chapter 3, looking in, became those who are with Jesus by the end of the story. Jesus' mother, his brothers, actually began to worship Jesus and put him at the center of their lives, even though they didn't recognize who Jesus was at the beginning of his earthly ministry. There was a transition, there was a, there was a transformation that happened. But those who are on the outside throughout the book of Mark are those who are trying to take charge of Jesus, those who are trying to seize Jesus, those who are trying to control Jesus. Jesus' family it, themselves were trying to fit Jesus into their expectations, 
They were trying to fit Jesus into their box. They were trying to make Jesus like them. And they were on the outside. Instead of being made in the image of God, the community on the outside is trying to make Jesus into their image. Instead of being formed by God, they are trying to form who God is. Those are those who are on the outside in the Gospel of Mark. Now, uh, on my social media feed this last week, uh, something came across my feed, and I was debating the last couple of days whether I would share it. And I've been debating whether to share it because I don't want us to get lost in the microscopic level of the point that I'm trying to make. I want us to have the ability to look from a high level and see what's happening in our culture. Uh, There was a creed that I heard a church recite. um, And a creed, uh, if if you don't know what a creed is, a creed is something that explains the fundamental convictions concerning God, the world, humanity, that articulates faith, that describes what it is that we believe so that we can be rallied, or rallied together along the same faith, the same truth. Uh, there was creeds written in the early church uh, to bind the people of God together uh, because people were trying to control and distort what the faith was. And so the, the creeds were written actually to protect the fundamentals of the faith. And they have been used throughout history to bind the church that got God's people together along the same things with Jesus as the center. We'll talk about that a little bit later. But there was a creed that I heard that was written not thousands of years ago, written a couple of years ago. Uh, and this is what it said. I heard it on my social media feed. I believe in the non-binary God whose pronouns are plural. I believe in Jesus Christ, their child, who wore a fabulous tunic and had two dads and saw everyone as a sibling child of God. I believe in the rainbow spirit who shatters our image of one white light and refracts it into a rainbow of gorgeous diversity. I believe in the call to each of us that love is love is love, so beloved, let us love. I believe, glorious God, help my unbelief. Now, my heart was incredibly sad when I heard this creed. Again, I don't want to get lost in the microscopic level here, but I want us to observe something of what's happening in our world and our culture. I want us to observe the symptom of a bigger reality that is going on. I mean, often on, on Sundays, I've taught about the movement uh, in, in postmodernism where we... Uh, where truth has become relative through the Enlightenment, through Industrial Revolution. Uh, you know, there was this modern era that we believed that we could conquer everything, that we could solve all of our own problems, that humanity would eventually save itself, so to speak. And then throughout the World, War, War, World Wars and different catastrophic events, there was this loss in the conviction of this ultimate truth, and so the pendulum swung the other way, and that's where we find ourselves now in this place of saying, well, if it's true for you, it can be true for you, and what's true for me is true for me. Let's just make sure that we honor each other's truth. And truth becomes relative. And if it's true, by definition, I don't think it can be relative, but this is the world that we live in. We live in a world and a society and a culture here in the Western world, and it's unique to the West, where we have decided what is true. In many ways, we have put ourselves at the center of our own world and said, I'm going to define truth from my center. And this has drastic effects. In fact, the implications of this is that we 
over time, not only define our truth, but begin to define truth for other people, because ultimately truth isn't relative and we believe it's true, it does impact other people. To the point that we are stating truths about who God is and who God isn't. And over time, it seems like the picture of God that we're hearing is more a reflection of our culture than it is a reflection of who God revealed himself to be. As you read this creed, you can see that it is just our culture kind of put up as a filter to look at God and understand who God is. If you read the creed carefully, you can also hear the longings of the human heart. That's also what's heartbreaking about it as I read it. You can hear the longings to belong and to be loved and to be a part of something that is bigger than myself. It's, it's all in there. But the difference is who's in the center? Who's in the center? Jesus' family was on the outside because they were trying to control and seize Jesus to be something that he wasn't. Over time, they came to put Jesus in the center and would worship him as Lord and Savior, and that changed everything. So we have those who were with him, who gave up everything to follow him, who gave up their families, their careers, and made Jesus the center. We had those who were on the outside throughout the book of Mark, those who were trying to control Jesus to make them into his image. And they found that Jesus didn't do that. He didn't play that game. That's what got him crucified. But then there's this other group that's around him. And they're there because they want something from him. They're there because they're curious. They're there because they're asking questions. They're there because they heard of this miracle worker and they probably experienced him as a miracle worker. They're there because they're curious what Jesus could do for them and how he might change their lives. It's a fascinating place to be in that circle. I believe, though, that everybody who is around Jesus will eventually have to decide whether they're going to be with him or be on the outside. Because Jesus won't be just content to be an entertainer or a miracle worker. You will always hit a point of needing to decide whether you just want to submit whether you want Jesus to submit to you, which was where his family was on the outside, or whether you're going to submit to Jesus. The people around him are curious and they're trying to figure out who is this Jesus, but at some point as they get the revelation of who Jesus is and that he is Lord, that he's the King of Kings, that he is the Savior of the world, and the people who are with him are those who acknowledge that they're not the center, that they're in need of grace and forgiveness, that is the people that are with him. For those who are unwilling to get there, They end up on the outside because Jesus isn't willing to play by their rules. But for now, at least in the story of Mark, we see that there is a group around him. Seeking, asking. And so which group are you in? Do you find yourself, along with our culture, trying to control who God is and seize him and say, I need you to get in my box and say what I want you to say? Or do we take God on his own terms? Do we respond to his call to be with him, to put him in the center, which means that everything else in our life gets reprioritized? Perhaps you're, with, you're in that middle group and this is a season that you're in where you're asking questions and you're doubting and you're seeking and you're, um, you're curious about who this Jesus is. I invite you along for the journey here at SunWest as we seek to walk in relationship with Jesus. The family of Jesus would eventually be with Jesus, as I said. Not because Jesus conformed to their expectation, but because they conformed to his and who he revealed himself to be. They came to know him as their Lord and their Savior. So which group are you in? 
Darren, gonna, can you advance to the next slide for me? If your goal is community, if that's what you're looking for, I believe your experience will be disappointment. If we look to community to others, to our tribe or to our family for identity, for belonging, for salvation and rescue, for justification for how we're living, we're going to be disappointed. Because pay attention to those things. If we look horizontally for the things that we can only get vertically, people will always, always, always disappoint you because they were never meant to give you your purpose, your identity, your justification, your belonging. When Jesus is your center, when you're with him, you are free to give and receive in community. You're actually even free to be hurt in community, and it's going to happen. And how can you be hurt in community and continue to live in community? Well, it's because the whole reason you're in the community of Jesus is because of his grace and his forgiveness and his acceptance of you. And so as we enter in submission to that community under Jesus, we recognize that I have enough grace and forgiveness to give away to, because that's why I'm here. That's the powerful part of Christian community when it's done right. Pay attention to the world around us, our collective drive for community, our collective drive for social justice, our collective drive for belonging is tearing one another down. It's destroying the very thing we actually long for, ironically. It's destroying the relational fabric of our society. Why? Because there's no person, no tribe, no people that can give you the identity, belonging, and rescue that you truly need. This is the gospel. This is the good news of Jesus. Is it possible that God knew what we needed more than we do? Your awareness of the forgiveness and grace that you need from God is actually the foundation of life-giving community because we remove the expectation on another to be our savior. We remove the expectation of another to give us our sense of identity. We remove the expectation of another to give us a sense of purpose because that is something that has been given to us through the grace and forgiveness of Jesus. One of my favorite Dietrich Bonhoeffer's quote, he wrote a powerful book that I would encourage you to read called Life Together. But he said this, and I'll try and read it slow because it's like cheesecake. It's so good, uh, but you can't eat it too fast. Those who love their dream of Christian community more than they love the Christian community itself. And I would actually add to Bonhoeffer, not the Christian community itself, but even more than they love Jesus himself. Become destroyers of that Christian community, even though their personal intentions may be ever so honest, earnest, and sacrificial. He goes on to say, and I don't have it on the screen, so just listen, that God hates visionary dreaming. It makes the dreamer proud and pretentious. The man who fashions a visionary ideal of community demands that it be realized by God, by others, and by himself. He enters the community of Christians with his demands, sets up his own law, and judges between the others and God himself accordingly. He stands adamant, a living reproach to all others in the circle of the church. He acts as if he is the creator of Christian community, as if his dream is what binds men and women together. And then Bonhoeffer says this, when things do not go his way or her way, he calls the effort a failure. When his ideal picture is destroyed, he sees the community going to smash, which I don't know exactly what that word means, but I get the essence of it. Now here it comes. Here's the truth bomb. So he becomes first an accuser of his brethren, of the church, then an accuser of God, 
And finally, the despairing accuser of himself. And I have seen this to be true. That people who come into community for the sake of community alone, with their ideal of community, end up first accusing somebody else. It's their fault. And you might rightfully be hurt and disappointed. But when, the, when, the, when we come to community for the sake of community and we put an expectation on other people that they can't fulfill, we will inevitably become, we'll come to a place where we point the finger at somebody else and say, it's their fault. But when this happens enough times, something changes in us. We start to point the finger at God. We become an accuser of God. We say, God, it's your fault. What did you have in mind? Why does this keep happening to me? And then over time, and I've seen this happen, that people begin to accuse themselves. It must be me. What's wrong with me? Why am I unlovable? Why am I not acceptable? Why does no one bring me in? Why can't I find a place to belong? And I know communities hurt you. I've been there. I have to process that often. Choosing to forgive and not be bitter. Choosing to leave my heart open instead of becoming hard and going into a place of self-protection. The danger is if we don't actually center ourselves around Jesus, that we will begin to accuse others, that we'll begin to accuse God himself, and that we'll even begin to accuse ourselves, and we live in this place of despair. So the theme of this morning is don't do life alone. And you might think, this had nothing to do with don't doing life alone. Uh, I would say it had everything to do with it. Because when we call SunWest as a faith community to do life together, there's some assumptions on what that means. It doesn't mean that community is the point. It actually means the point is to be with Jesus and on mission to, to Jesus, and then we get to do that together. And we were created to do that together. It doesn't mean, when we say don't do life alone, it doesn't mean community is our goal. It means that community is a byproduct of following Jesus together. The call of the Christian community is to be with Jesus and to be sent out by Jesus. When we don't do life alone, we're doing it because we are with Jesus. When we don't do life alone, it's because we are on mission with Jesus. When we don't do life alone, it's because we have all centered ourselves around Jesus and find that we're shoulder to shoulder with other people that have put him at the center. And so we listed these groups, and we encourage you to get involved in a group. But the group and your experience in a group is not the end point. Jesus is the end point, but we're doing it together. Now, I mentioned the creeds earlier. The Apostles' Creed was written in the 5th century as a way to articulate the Christian faith that held the church together and continues to hold the church together. In a time where people are trying to control God and make him into their image, we go back to those historic creeds as the thing that centers us on who we are, why we're here, what we believe, and what Jesus has called us to. The Apostles' Creed united a community and has continued to do that throughout history. We weren't created for community. We were created for God And we experience the byproduct of community when we do that together. So I'm going to invite you to stand. And as we close in this last song, as we move into the last song, I'm going to invite us to read the Apostles' Creed together. And you might be on the outside thinking, how can I seize Jesus and control him? Um, Jesus isn't going to be controlled. (laughs) He's the King of Kings. And this is a reminder of what it means to actually put him in the center. Maybe you're in the, uh, on that around group 
And you're thinking, what is this all about? Who is this Jesus all about? The Apostles' Creed actually brings us back to that center. And maybe you're with Jesus, and this is a good reminder for what it is that brings us together foundationally as a faith community. So let's read this together. I believe in God the Father Almighty, creator of heaven and earth. I believe in Jesus Christ, God's only Son, our Lord, who was conceived by the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary, suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, died, and was buried. He descended to the dead. On the third day he rose again, he ascended into heaven. He is seated at the right hand of the Father, and he will come to judge the living and the dead. I believe in the Holy Spirit, the holy Christian church, the communion of saints, the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body, and the life everlasting. Amen. pray. Lord, we thank you. We thank you that you created us with these longings. We thank you that you created us in your image. But Lord, you created us with a certain environment and idea of how uh, we would truly thrive as humans. Lord, in the pursuit of these longings, sometimes we get things backwards and we prioritize our lives in ways that are self-destructing. Lord, forgive us. Lord, give us wisdom. Lord, give our leaders in our world and our culture wisdom. Lord, we choose not to try and make you into our image, but we choose to be formed into your image. Jesus, we put you in the center. We proclaim that there is no one like you, that there's no other name under heaven which men can be saved. And so, Jesus, we confess your name. We say thank you for your grace, for your forgiveness. Lord, we thank you that we've been invited to be part of the family of God, the children of God. We've been invited to be part of the body of Christ, that we've been bound by the Holy Spirit to the fellowship of the Spirit. Lord, we thank you that it is you that binds us together, Lord. And because of that, despite the disappointments and the pains and the hurts that are represented in this room, there's enough faith, there's enough forgiveness, there's enough grace for one another because you have given it to us. Lord, we thank you for this. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, I've gone over time, uh, and so I am going to release. There's prayer teams available. Uh, if you'd like prayer for anything, um, we would love to pray for you. Uh, we invite you to uh, come back next week as we look at No Perfect People Allowed. Uh, that's the value we're looking at next week. And a reminder that there's men's retreat next Friday. Uh, look forward to that with those that are going. Have a great week. We'll see you next week. Thank mm-hmm. you.